But it's wonderful to be here with you and to, uh, we've already begun some very meaningful fellowship with the people who work with the Bible Society. And I'm just thrilled that you arranged to have this meeting. I see quite a number of people that I've known in other contexts and very thankful to see you again. And I'm hoping to get to know as many of you as I can as we go through the day. Now, we put up on the screen a while ago uh, a, a theme, uh, personal religion or public reality, I think is the way it reads. And we're going to come to that, and I want to invest our time and energy today in working through how the Christian and the Christian faith stand in our world today. There are real problems with the interface. And I, I do actually experience that sometimes with reference to myself because people think, how could you possibly be someone who is a professional philosopher and an out-and-out -out Christian? And uh, that incongruity that many people experience when they see me uh, and their vision of what the public reality is and what the personal religion is simply can't put those things together. We're going to put it together today by God's help. And I hope to be able to change and shift our understanding of who we are and what we have to say in such a way that we will be able to stand in the world as the public reality that God himself is. God is in secret, but he's also in public. We are public by simply living in the kingdom of God. There's nothing more public than the kingdom of God. But it allows itself to be veiled and hidden because the call is for people who will respond freely and move into the kingdom of God. And the rule is, seek first the kingdom of God. And when you do that, you find it. It comes to us in Jesus Christ, comes to us in the Bible, comes to us in nature, comes to us in art, in history, in many, many ways. But if you don't want to know it, you don't have to, at least for now. You see. And that is God's purpose in dealing with humanity. I mean, you as a human being uh, have an interest in knowing why there is such a thing as human history. And we want to talk about that today and to be able to cast some light on who we are individually. And now I have, uh, there's a handout. You can identify it because it is on skimpy American paper. And uh, I thought I had better make copies and bring them with me because you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> and, uh, but you can identify it that way. Uh, unfortunately, the print is a little small because I didn't want to weight the plane down too much. Uh, but uh, I, I think you can find that and uh, we're going to be working through it. But we're not going to start there. We want to put this in a, uh, in a setting and uh, we want to start with basically our worship and uh, try to get before us uh, the reality that we're going to be talking about. And we'll start with Psalm 46. You know this. God is our refuge and strength. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Now, imagine a world in which you can live without fear. And that is exactly the world that Jesus brings us into as we put our confidence in him and begin to act on what he is and what he does. We enter a world in which we outgrow fear. 
So whenever we see words like this, we will not fear, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. We have a frequent conversations about that in California. <laughs> though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, there is a river, the streams whereof make glad the city of God. He is in the midst of her, the city of God. That wonderful phrase that St. Augustine took for uh, the name of his masterpiece, the city of God. It is the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will never be moved. The nations make an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. I'll fix that picture in your mind because that's where you live as a disciple of Jesus. You live there. That's not something you just talk about and do a little cheerleading from time to time with. This is a description of sober reality. Now, I, I, I want to just refer to that reality. There are many, many scriptures that talk about it. Living with absence of fear, wonderful phrase from the 23rd Psalm. Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, where death is looming over me, I will fear no evil because I really know how to grit my teeth. <laughs> That's not the secret, is it? The secret is thou art with me. Hear these words from Hebrews 13. Let your life be without love of money and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The presence of God. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? God is our refuge and strength. Paul, you'll recall when he stood among the Greeks of Athens in Acts 7, as it is recorded, talks about the nature of God and the nature of human beings. And he says, he is not far from us. For in him we live and move and have our being. In him we live. Now, getting a hold of that, you see, is the challenge. Because we actually live in two landscapes. Two landscapes. Now, I won't turn to, I'm, I'm moving fast here because I want to get to my main topic. But I want to set the background. And you'll remember 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is renewed day by day. See, you live in two landscapes. They intersect in your body. Your body is visible, but you aren't. You are not a visible being. You are a spiritual being. And of course, most of the time, we're rather glad we aren't visible, don't you think? And actually, one of the reasons why we love little children so much and delight in them is because they are visible. They haven't learned how to hide their souls. It's just right out there. And of course, when you, if you live long enough, you get to have a second childhood and you can be like that then. <laughs> You are an invisible being. And our light affliction, Paul says there, which is but for a moment, 
works for us an exceeding greater weight of glory while we look not at the visible. See, that's one landscape. That's what Paul calls the mind of the flesh. We look not at the visible. Well, you know, you have to do some of that or you'll get run over. (laughs) Perhaps what we should say is we look through it. We look not at the visible, but at the invisible. For the things that are seen are temporal, and the things that are not seen are eternal. So you see, that's, that tells you who you are. Once you begin to understand the reality of God, then you begin to know better who you are. That's what's so disastrous about not knowing about God is you don't know about you if you don't know about God. And you don't know what your destiny is. And your destiny, which is set out in Genesis 1.26, and is brought to fulfillment in Revelations 22.5. If you don't know Revelations 22.5, you want to become very familiar with it, because it's your future. There are other statements about it. But there it says... They will have no need of a light because God will be present with them. Light is effulgent energy. That's what it is. And in that category, there's nothing like God. He dwells in light unapproachable. You remember that language? Light unapproachable. He is light. And the work of the Spirit is manifest in light, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. Light. Energy. Now then. And they shall live and reign with him forever. That's you. That's why you came into existence. God not only creates, he creates creators. And that's why on your best day, you are most creative. He creates creators. And that's the story about you and God from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. So look at Genesis 1 and then look at Revelation 22 and you get the full picture. Now, I would love to just stay there, but I have to deal with an issue. And the issue is, what is the status of our relationship to that reality? And not just then, and not just later, but now. And I'm going to say a few things to you that would be a little hard perhaps to understand. And one reason why I bring the sheet with me is because I can state there in sentences a few words that we really need to have if we're going to stand firm in our understanding and our faith today and if we're going to bring the witness to people around us who are so desperately in need. If people generally knew the reality of what we're talking about, the problems of the earth would be solved. Because the problems of the earth come from human beings trying to assert their individual and group kingdoms in place of God's kingdom. And it is a losing proposition. Actually, There is another being whom we refer to as Satan who tried that. And it has not worked well for him. (laughs) And it will not work well for us. But how are we to understand the relationship that we have living in this world to the glorious kingdom of God who is our refuge and our strength? A very present, not then, not then, present is now. A very 
present help in time of trouble. See, how are we to understand that? And in particular, we have to talk about the fact that many people think our relationship is one of faith only and not knowledge. Okay, now let me just stomp my foot and say that difference is what we have to spend our first hour talking about. And that's what your first discussion on the sheet is about. And then we, the next discussion is about Jesus as one who brings knowledge. And then our final session today is about what we call spiritual formation. Uh, spiritual formation is the process that happens to you as a disciple. And to present spiritual formation now as a way of knowledge. We're not going to do away with faith. Don't worry about that. But we're going to try to put faith in the appropriate foundation that God has provided in knowledge. And we want to undermine this idea that faith and knowledge are opposed. The consequence being that the Christian in this world is often thought to be someone who is ignorant or worse. Superstitious, possibly. Irrational. Given to uh, gigantic leaps of faith. Whereas, of course, the world has knowledge. Right? And uh, it knows what it's doing. The Christian is just blindly leaping. You get up in the morning and you make a leap of faith or something. I'd... Leaps of faith, as that language is used, is really leaps without faith. And that's why you hear people say, well, you know, I just can't make the leap of faith. Well, would you like to consider a few facts that might help you? Right? It'll help your faith. Because faith is meant to be environed in knowledge. That is the biblical picture. Abraham, David, Jesus, Paul, faith environed in knowledge. Now, I'm going to have to talk to you about knowledge and faith. And uh, kind of hang on to your seat, you know. <laughs> It is said that philosophers go down deeper, stay down longer, and come up drier than anyone else. <laughs> now, I'm going to try not to do that. So, uh, my strategy is basically I've written some things down, and now I'm going to try to talk to you about them and, and stay out of that deep, dry stuff. Okay, because knowledge is common sense reality. It's common sense reality. And I'm, I'm hoping that in this first hour, as we go through it, you will see clearly how knowledge and faith are made for each other. They're made for each other. And life can only be whole if you have them both. And discipleship can only be a steady path of life for the individual who combines knowledge of God and of themselves with faith. Okay, so here we go now. When do you know something? This is not a philosophical discussion. This is a discussion about ordinary life because knowledge is one of the most common things in your life. You know something. Now, it's written down, but just try to listen to me. You know something when you are able to represent it or deal with it or talk about it or think about it as it is on an appropriate basis of thought and experience. That's when you know something. Now that's what you want for someone who's coming to clean your house or fix your car, <coughs> or repair your teeth or your brain, 
You want someone who is able to represent things as they are on an appropriate basis of thought and experience. You don't want them just to be right. You want them to know what they're doing. Right? You wouldn't take your car to a repair place that had a sign in front that said, we are lucky at making repairs. <laughs> or even, we experience occasional inspiration. <laughs> no, you want someone who knows how to tell what's wrong with your car and how to fix it. See, luck is not a modus operandi for life. And divine inspiration is not either. Now that one may go down hard for you, but please try it. Okay. Divine inspiration, especially for the person who has put their confidence in Christ, is precious, indispensable. It's a major part of what we call grace, and we'll talk about grace more later on. It's a major part of it. But God is in the process of forming people who have character and are able to live in his world in a way that is steady and reliable. You can count on it. You can know what it is. You can grow in it. You can give it to others and help them find that. And of course, the presence of the scripture the presence of Christian traditions is a large part of that. For example, when we go to the great saints, uh, we were singing something from St. Francis of Assisi earlier, when we go to them, we gain knowledge. Gain knowledge. That's why they're very important. They really are very important. That's why, that's why testimony in the present is very important for Christian life because it brings knowledge. And that is what witness does. You think about the word witness. Now when you, when you see that suffix ness on an English word, it is a way of calling attention to what is essential. And wit is an old English word derived from the German that refers to knowledge. A witness is the essence of knowledge. They give knowledge. See, that's what a witness does. A witness does not just sort of try to get you to do something. They bring you knowledge that will set before you a path to something that is good, a witness. That's why in a court of law, I think it's true here as it is in the States, people don't much care about what you believe or what you heard. They want to know what you saw. There are enough problems with that. <laughs> right? But still, they want knowledge. Knowledge. Now, knowledge is essential to faith. You want your faith to be based on knowledge. Okay, now, so what is faith? Faith has a tie to the will that knowledge does not have. You believe something when you are ready to act as if it were true under appropriate circumstances. The easiest illustration of that is how you're sitting in those chairs. You have faith in those chairs. If you didn't, you wouldn't be sitting there like that. Right? And actually, your faith in those chairs is based on knowledge, a general knowledge about a place like this and chairs like that and what we're doing. And you are quite right in knowing that if there were an unreliable chair, in this building, someone would have moved it. 
That's knowledge. And so faith is an act of will based upon knowledge. Now, biblically, that's always the way it's presented. Always the way it's presented. Abraham went out not knowing uh, where he was going. But he knew who was with him. See? Very interesting story later on when he sends his servant to get a wife for his son. And his servant, though he had lived with Abraham for many years, really didn't know how it worked. And you know that's quite possible. You can be around a person of great spiritual knowledge and faith and not understand it. But Abraham simply said, well, just go, and God's angel will be with you. And if you don't know that story about uh, Eliezer going to get a wife for Isaac, read it, because it's a beautiful illustration of how someone acts in faith, on knowledge, and God enters their life and transforms it. And read that story about Eliezer and how he had no idea... Uh, in terms of the realities of it. But in faith, he said, now I will stand here by the well and uh, I will say to a young woman who comes, uh, give me water. And if she's the one, she will say, drink, and I will give your camels also water to drink. Now, that was a big operation. Camels drink a lot. Not easy to get the water to them. And lo and behold, Rebecca said that very thing. Eliezer came to know what he didn't know previously because he acted in faith based on the knowledge of Abraham. David did not go out against Goliath in a leap of faith. If you don't know something, your leaps won't leap. You have to have knowledge. David explained why he could do what he said he was going to do to Goliath. And you remember it was on the basis of his experience. He said, I've been keeping the sheep. And there came a bear. I forget whether the bear became before the lion, but you can straighten that out. And, uh, of course, you know, a bear is a considerable creature. And David said, uh, I killed the bear. And then there came a lion, and I killed him. Now, the thing was, David knew he didn't do it. You understand what I'm saying? He knew who did it. And, of course, that is the heart of the with God life, is acting with God. So uh, he had knowledge of acting with God. He knew what it meant to say, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. God is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Now, folks, it's hard not to stop right there and break out into preaching. (laughs) Because that is a wonderful, glorious thing that can set you entirely free from fear. With all of the things that people fear, God is my helper. He acts with me. And the primary way that you know the reality of God in your life as you move into discipleship to Jesus and learning about the reality of the invisible landscape and that you can live there by the mind of the Spirit, the primary reality is God acts with you. Not feeling. There are feelings. And they're important, and they can mean a lot. 
Action is where you know the kingdom of God. It's in action. It isn't in contemplation. And we don't have time to talk about a lot of things, but that's because you are primarily a, an actor. You act. You exercise dominion, responsibility. And it's when you step into that with God that you know God acting with you. Do you see how that worked in David's case? You see how that worked in David? Now that's the pattern for all of us. And, and we're all in a position where we need to be acting in faith on the basis of our knowledge. And our knowledge will grow and our character will grow and the world around us will be changed. And when we come to people who do not know what we are as Christians, we can tell them with knowledge how to live in faith. Okay, we've got two other things to talk about there, though. Because there's knowledge, and then there's faith or belief, and then there's commitment. Now, commitment actually is an act of will that doesn't even rest on belief. And really, that's why I think quite misleadingly often we try to get people to commit themselves to something. And it's very hard to live by it because it is simply an act of will. And one of the things you need to learn, if you haven't already, is how little can be accomplished by an act of will. Now, we don't want to come down on commitment without some qualification because actually commitment can be a path to faith and a path to knowledge. You have to be careful with it because it can also be a path to disaster. It can be a path to futility if it is not something that is met by the reality that corresponds to it. Commitment, you commit yourself to something when you decide to act as if it were true, whether you believe it or not. Certainly whether you know it. If you're lost in the forest, you might commit yourself to go in this direction because you've got to go in some direction. If, if you are faced with a personal decision, a relationship to others, uh, perhaps an occupational choice or uh, a marriage or some uh, pathway of education, uh, you may have to commit yourself because the time comes and the plane leaves, the semester starts, the person decides to marry someone else, uh, and the investment uh, disappears and it's all over. So sometimes we have to commit ourselves when we don't know what to do and we have no belief about the matter. Right? That's commitment. Now, one further move is profession. Profession is where you say you believe something or are committed to something but not necessarily, you see. Now, human life being what it is, people are often forced into professions. And we see this in religion in many parts of history, many places today. Professing a religion may be the only way you can save your life or your job or your home or your family. Professing, saying you believe something, whether you believe it or not. Okay. See, that's, that's crucial. Because so much of our religion, folks, is based on profession. Profession without commitment, without belief, and certainly without knowledge. And actually, this situation that I'm talking to you about this morning, where 
faith is often presented as opposed to knowledge leads many people into thinking that profession is all you have. And it leads people into thinking, well, if you profess, at least God will like that. But you see, that's where people uh, fail to understand the power of faith. And they will say things like, faith doesn't work. Because they are not talking about faith, they're talking about profession. And profession is one thing and faith is another. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because you have to be prepared to act as if he were real. But it didn't say without profession. Faith is a vital reality in human life and its only condition is so far as possible it should be based on knowledge. Okay, now let me step aside. If I, I hope I've made those four things. Knowledge, belief, Commitment, profession. They're very clear. You want to know they are different. You want to realize how difficult it is to conduct the Christian way on the basis of profession and commitment. You want to understand that as preachers and teachers, our task is not to get people to do things. Our task is to communicate knowledge. And if we just get people to profess things, then we'll have to spend the rest of our life jump-starting them every week, trying to get them to do things they don't want to do. And many people think that's what a minister is supposed to do, <laughs> is to get people to do things they don't want to do. No, no, the task of the minister is under the power of the word and the presence of the Holy Spirit to bring knowledge to people. You bring knowledge to people of the reality of the kingdom of God, of the risen Christ who now walks the land, and of the fact that you can actually live a life in union with that risen Christ. And we'll talk more about that later. But I, I just have to say to you, you, we need to understand how this has changed. And that if you were to go back to people in the 16th century, or the 17th century even, you would find that it was routinely understood that the Bible and Christian tradition and Christian teachers brought knowledge. They brought knowledge. If you were to confront uh, a John Calvin or a later John Wesley or Luther or any of these great formers of the modern version of Christianity with the idea that what they were teaching was not knowledge, they would have thought you were crazy. They're, they're, you read the catechisms that come out of this period. Or just read Wesley's sermons. Now remember, knowledge, you have knowledge when you represent things as they are on an appropriate basis of thought and experience. And of course that includes authority because most of us, most of what all of us know, we, we learn from someone else. And that's a perfectly good source. Most of us here know the multiplication tables, for example. We know them. We've never worked them out probably. Occasionally you'll find some enterprising little boy or girl who'll decide they're just going to do it. And they will sit down in a corner and figure out why it is that seven times five equals 35. Now when I'm really being mean, I give you a wrong figure just to say. <laughs> <laughs> equals 43, <laughs> right? That helps us all wake up, but it's mean. So, now, the scripture comes to us, usually within a historical setting, and it brings knowledge. 
It brings knowledge of God. Now, people do not have to accept what they can know. This is a, an important point for us to understand. Disagreement does not mean that you don't know. And if someone were to come and say, seven times five is 43, and so let's suppose that they were really going to be obnoxious about it, it wouldn't move you in the least. You would just say, well, you should look into it. <laughs> And that's exactly how knowledge is. Knowledge does not jump down your throat. No one walking down the street one day suddenly knows algebra. Now, if they would like to know algebra, they can come to do that. And they would, first of all, decide this was a good thing. In America, very few of our students think that it's a good thing. To know <laughs> different here, I, I trust. And that's why they don't learn it, you see. If I'm talking with someone about the existence of God or the reliability of Christ, the reality of Christ, uh, I always, one way or another, I want to go past the issue, would you like for God to exist? Would you like it? Because if they wouldn't like it, you're going nowhere with them. God will settle matters with them later, but they have to want to know. <coughs> and that's true of us today when we're dealing with issues about the knowledge of God. You have to want to know. But what has happened now is that in order to negotiate issues of authority, the world has pushed the church out of accepted knowledge. See, that's why personal religion, see, if they can push you into that idea that religion is personal, then they can claim public reality. Now this, here's why that's true. Again, this is written down on your sheet, so you, you can check it out and get the wording. But knowledge has an effect that nothing else does. Knowledge gives you authority. It gives you authority to act, to direct action, to formulate and supervise policy, and to teach. Okay, now that's all on your sheet, so... You can find that. But it's really important to understand this because this is the issue. If the Bible Society, for example, is bringing knowledge, they are conveying to people the right and responsibility to act, to supervise action, to formulate policy and supervise its implementation, and to teach. That's why knowledge in its effects is always political, as we say. It's always political. Not in its nature, because you don't know things by voting or getting up a committee or something. That won't help to know something. But its effects are always political because it conveys those rights and responsibilities. Now do you see how in the public mind to put the followers of Christ out of knowledge into something else called faith? <coughs> Simply hamstrings the way it stands in the world and the back effect is it undermines the faith of the people who are Christians. Because then they are branded as people who make these wonderful leaps. They leap, you know. And those leaps 
are always thought of as irrational. So when you bring your scripture and your teaching to some person, they can just say, well, you know, you make leaps, I don't make leaps. I don't make leaps. So you are dismissed. Now I have on that sheet somewhere a really uh, important statement. I quote, this is actually uh, in the middle of page two, a little below the middle. The main defense or barrier of the contemporary world against Christian knowledge is learned contempt. This prevents it having any serious engagement, the contemporary world, with issues such as the existence of God and the reality and relevance of Jesus Christ. A thinker of late 1800s stated, and this is the quote that you might want to uh, hold up or to think about. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. <coughs> now that is, in general, the attitude of much of the supposedly informed world towards Christianity today is contempt prior to investigation. And what are we to do about that? We are to understand ourselves that we operate from knowledge. And we are to understand ourselves the limitations of that because not everything we profess and live by is something we know. There is a crucial role for faith. Now remember, faith is being ready to act as if something were true, whether or not you know it. But the ideal is still to believe the things you know. And in responsible human existence, that's what we require of ourselves and of others is that we would take the trouble to know the things that we can. Now, without a doubt, the most foundational of the things that we need to know is the existence of God. And we need to confront that strongly because the assumption is that people cannot know that, that that cannot be known. <coughs> And uh, that is not the position of the Bible, of Jesus, or of God. Their idea is that you can know. Now, I'll be illustrating this more in the second session. But I just want to give you the words here from the Apostle Paul in Romans 1. And we need to really think through, do we believe this? Here's what Paul says. He says in Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. See, human beings are constantly in the business of suppressing truths they don't like. Because that truth condemns them. It condemns them. The truth will not only make you free, it will make you flee. <laughs> and that's what most people do. Paul goes on to say, because that which is known about God is evident. Evident among them. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine stature, nature have been clearly seen. You know, you ask yourself the question, why is it that most people in history and throughout the earth, the only kind of exception shows up in 
Europe and North America. Why is it that most people, for most times throughout the earth, have believed in some kind of God, at least one, and perhaps more? And it is because, as Paul is pointing out here, of the dependent nature of physical reality. Here's what he says. They have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now you and I have to decide whether or not Paul knew what he was talking about. And knowledge of God is available to everyone. It's available to everyone. Now if someone says, well, I'm an agnostic, you know. You say, well, why don't you find out? See, if I were wandering through the airport and someone said, what gate are you leaving from? And I said, well, I'm an agnostic. (laughs) He wouldn't think I was being clever. He'd think there's something wrong with me. And what I just need to say to you, because I have to stop now in this hour, is knowledge of God, the existence and nature of God, is the foundation stone upon which a living faith. You can't really understand Jesus unless you have a pretty firm idea of God. Now, he needs, it's absolutely essential for him to come and help you with that idea. Because, of course, people go terribly wrong with their idea of God, don't they? So we need help. That's what Paul is talking about here is not the end, it's the beginning. It's the beginning, but it's the essential beginning. And we have many people today who believe in Jesus, but don't believe in God. And you cannot get very far with Jesus unless you believe in God. Because he has come to bring us to God. So knowledge now, and uh, I haven't had time this morning to really take you through scriptures, but there are scriptures at the beginning of the notes, Peter and John and all of the passages referred to, and I'm going to have to leave that with you. But knowledge is the foundation of faith. And faith without the foundation in knowledge becomes powerless. And if you look at how human life goes today, both inside and outside the church, the fundamental lack is knowledge of God. Now, may the Lord give us wisdom and understanding and help us to see both the importance and the content of this teaching. We ask in the name and honor of Jesus that this would come to pass for all of us. So let it be done. Amen.